We live in a time of impending claims to spiritual authority. These people who claim that I speak for God or or I speak for God, and they're all saying different things, and they have all these ideas about what truth is, and they they bring these new philosophies of ministry into uh, the the pulpit these days, and and so much of it comes in so-called prophecies. And there are organizations like the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons where we can point very clearly at them not being within the household of faith. But then we have the Catholic Church where the Pope, if he speaks what's called ex cathedra, he is speaking uh, for God at that point. And it doesn't matter if it is uh, in line with Scripture because at that point that supersedes Scripture. And yet, ironically, we live in a culture and an environment where we have these incessant pleas for tolerance and acceptance, and and my view is as equally valid as your view. And the sad part about this is a lot of times this creeps into the evangelical churches. And I hate I I, I have to say that um, this is getting a real foothold in evangelicalism, and. We have to be careful of all of this spiritual goulash that's going on uh, where no one ever has any biblical authority and anyone trying to say that they're standing on the Word of God and the Word of God alone, sola scriptura, that they're wrong, that they are false and maybe even um, decried as demonic and intolerant and unjust. Um, or unjust. And, and, and so we have to be careful because in the midst of all this confusion, the general church and, and society at large, um, it seems as though your own personal thoughts trump the Word of God. We have a clarity in the Word of God, but it's always tried to make it look like it's very muddy. And I think the beautiful thing about the Word is that it brings a clarity and a focus. It clears away the smoke that's out there, these smoke screens. And it gives us a sense of confidence as we move forward to know exactly what the truth of God is what he has told us about this life and the life to come. Now let's suppose that you were moving into a new town and you're looking for a place to worship and a place to belong. And suppose you're visiting a a worshiping community and you pick up the bulletin, you sit down, and you read the mission statement of that group. Well, let me read one here. This one says, the mission of the -the fill-in-the-blank church is to encourage benevolence and empathy, to reject tyrannical authority, advocate practical common sense, oppose injustice, and undertake noble pursuits. 
you go, man, that's good. That's a good one. I think I would certainly want to belong to that. That encourages benevolence and empathy. And I agree with rejecting tyrannical authority. And and who doesn't want to advocate for practical common sense? Well, of course, I oppose injustice. There's too much of that in the world. And I really want my life to count by undertaking noble pursuits. I think this might be a place I could just check into. Now, you may be surprised to learn that this mission statement that I just read to you was taken off the website of the Satanic Temple. It sounds benign, almost like a group which you want might want to belong. But of course, it's a complete opposite of biblical Christianity. In his book, The Gospel According to Starbucks, Leonard Sweet tells a story of uh, Ed Fobert. And Fobert is what you call a cupper. In layman's terms, he's actually a coffee taster. And he has such sensitive taste buds that they're actually certified by the state of New York. And so, so refined is Forbert's sense of taste for coffee that even while blindfolded, he can take one sip of coffee and tell you not just that this is from Guatemala, but what state it comes from, what altitude it was grown on, and what mountain. That is absolutely amazing. And this is uncommon ability. He has to have uncommon discernment to tell all those things. And very few people in the world are able to make that level of distinction. And I think one of the greatest challenges for Christians today is to be able to distinguish between truth and error. Some may assert that it takes an uncommon level of discernment to distinguish between truth and error, but I don't believe that. And I don't think that the Apostle John believed that either. He wrote in his letter to help believers, believers at all levels of maturity, to distinguish between truth and error. And he actually says at the end of our text for this morning, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You see, Satan can't destroy truth. God has established truth for eternity. Therefore, Satan has to be content with trying to corrupt truth, making it untrue and unstable. John teaches us in this letter that because of Satan, and that because he's so busy trying to corrupt truth, that has no eternal value. We need to know truth. We need to be able to identify truth, and we need to declare truth. And to that end, discerning the truth is not optional for the Christian. It's critical. I actually watched um, a couple videos, uh, one actually this morning, where this pastor was telling these people, don't worry about getting too deep in Scripture just float along the top. 
And that's unbiblical. That's just flat out unbiblical. But that's happening in churches today. It's all about unity, all about getting together, all about the, like Vodi says, the 11th commandment, thou shall be nice. That's what it all seems to be about. But, you know, discerning the truth isn't optional. It's very critical. And in this text, John warns his beloved fellow Christian that there are plenty of false teachers out there and, and they know they can't destroy truth, but like their father the devil, they are content to corrupt it. To make you think, what, what actually is true anymore? And I think that's a very important question. Especially when it applies to Jesus, our Savior. We can know truth and we must know truth. We must be confident in what we know. You know, they, they asked the question, The same question is what the devil asked Eve. Did God really say that? You know, we need to be careful about that. And so let's go ahead and turn to our text for this morning. It's found in 1 John chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 1 through 6. First John chapter 4, and starting with verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and you have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He knows, he who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If you were to ask the question, what is the def- definition of discernment? What would you say? What, how would you define discernment? Well, I want to give you just a, a simple work, workable definition here. And it's to have the ability to judge well. To have the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. If that is what you would say, I'd agree with you. But I want to expand on that just a little bit more. but Because we're living in a day where we just need to know more than just the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. We also need to have the ability to distinguish what is almost right and almost wrong. We must not forget how subtle the enemy is. We live in days of great deception, whether we are considering the physical world we live in or the spiritual world we live in. And it's my opinion that things aren't so 
black and white as they used to be. It appears to me that they have been mixed. So what we have is sort of a dirty gray all the time. And don't mistake the fact that truth is still truth and a lie is still a lie. That's not the issue. The issue is how some truths and how some lies are being presented. They're being repackaged by Satan himself. Truth as presented today is determined by a position one takes instead of the reality of facts. For many, facts don't matter. For some, it's it's a matter of subjective opinion, situational ethics, instead of undeniable empirical evidence. I think we see this in this day. It seems that truth is being decided uh, from whatever position a person takes and nothing else matters. We see this with gender. you got to be kidding me. I mean, the plumbing tells it all. The, the, the chromosomes tell. Uh, there, there are undeniable evidences of who is male and who is female. And that's why John would have his readers understand that there are many unbelievable spirits in this world And that's why he encourages us to test the spirits before we believe them. And so looking at verse 1 again, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The first thing I'd like to do is begin by defining what John means by spirit. The Greek word for spirit is the word pneuma. And it actually occurs six times in the Greek in this text. It's actually the word breathe or wind. And it's where we get our our English word pneumatic and pneumonia. Two times if you look in the text, the word begins with a capital S, and that refers to uh, God the Holy Spirit. Four times the word begins with a lowercase s, which refers to demonic spirits. And there are many spirits. The Holy Spirit is only one. And He's a perfect spirit. He is God. And He is a central figure in John's letter. And He taught us that we know that Christ abides in us through the Holy Spirit. And we see that in in 1 John 3.24. But we also know that we abide in Christ through the Holy Spirit, which we will see in in chapter 4 and verse 13. We know the truth through the Holy Spirit. He is a chief uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit, is to teach the Word of God and the truth of God and the Bible as it is written, because He breathed out the Word of God. And he did it through human authors. In the context of this paragraph, John uses the word spirit to refer to this animating force of a person. In other words, John has already taught that there are only two groups of people in the world. Those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. So every person is either a voice for God or a voice for the devil. Therefore, the spirit behind each person is either God or the devil. And he warns his beloved flock against false teachers 
who were teaching that they had a special knowledge of God. They claimed that they they have the Spirit of God in them and that you had to go to them to understand anything. But John insists that they had the spirit of the devil. And not everyone who claimed to speak by the Spirit of God was doing so. John did not want believers to accept every claim as being inspired. Instead, he said, believers must test the spirits. John wanted believers to be aware that there are many false claims to spirit-inspired speech. And therefore, believers must always test the spirits to determine whether they are speaking from God or speaking from the devil. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, in verses 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And of course, Paul, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, gave us a wonderful teaching in 2 Timothy 3.16. And it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for uh, instruction in righteousness. We need to always go to Scripture. Always go to Scripture. You want your answer? Don't sit there and think about what makes sense to you. Go to Scripture. And Scripture will always make sense to those who know God. Now, God the Holy Spirit teaches us, His people, the truth. And Jesus promised that that would happen. In John 14, 26, he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I think this is incredibly important. If you noticed one word there, remembrance. He will bring to remembrance Do you know what you need to remember? You need to know it ahead of time. You can't remember things you never knew. That is so important that we keep that in mind. Put your nose in Scripture, and He will bring those things to remembrance. And all those other spirits that John is referring to as many, they're all from the enemy Satan. They are angels who fell with Satan. And they do Satan's work. And they were very obvious during Jesus' ministry as they resisted him. And in dwelling individuals, they were causing pain and suffering and sickness. They resisted the apostles' ministry and the founding of the church um, through people they indwelt. And, And it's sort of like that slave girl in Ephesus. Later in our text, John very accurately calls them the spirit of Antichrist. And to conclude that there are many spirits active in the world today is to really understand what David Allen's statement here says. Uh, I quote, The supernatural is real, but not always from God. End quote. You know, we, we tend to think if it's supernatural, oh, that's God. We need to be careful. 
We need to understand that miraculous signs prove nothing. It is as though uh, someone does a little something in a controlled healing service in the stadium and somehow all of a sudden they're speaking truth. That's not that that could be the farthest from the truth. That's backwards thinking. That's misguided thinking. And the Bible specifically warns us not to look for signs and wonders as a test of truth. Jesus in Matthew 24 uh, verses 23 and 24 uh, uh, said about the end times. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. If possible. And let me tell you, it isn't. But it's saying that's how devious it is. That's how devious it is those signs and wonders can be. And the fact that someone can put on a little show in front of people and say whatever they want, they don't care if they're speaking the truth or not. The beast of Revelation 13 performed great signs in order to deceive nations. And so the message of Scripture, as we're going to see, um, as we go on, consistently, and at so many times, says, don't be gullible. Don't believe everybody that passes by. Don't be taken in by the latest excitement. I mean, that's the thing that gets so many people hooked, is, oh, it's just exciting. we got something going here. And wouldn't you like to be part of that? Well, what happens in a lot of churches is they get people in the doors, they get them all excited and said, you want to be part of that. And they go, do you like, did you like the music? Oh, I love the music. That was energizing. Did you like the preaching? Well, that's what they call preaching at least. And they, they go, well, you know, that was very uplifting. And they go, wouldn't you like to be part of this? So it's a matter of assimilation instead of regeneration. We are not looking to assimilate people. We are looking that God would do a work in their hearts, and they would be regenerated. It's not a matter of us looking good. It's not a matter of us doing these things that are uh, make mark of, of these, uh, these weak people and easy prey. We're not looking to manufacture something supernatural. We don't do that. We preach the Word If you please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 13 and 14. Second Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13. These men are false apostles. Notice what the next word is. Deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Time and time again during Jesus' earthly ministry, the unbelieving crowd told him, that they would believe him if he would just do one more miracle. 
as I was studying this, I thought, what was one of the things that you just go, you've got to be kidding me. And then I remembered Matthew 27, verse 42. It says, he saved others. This is the Pharisees talking. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. The next thing they say is, and we will believe. One more miracle. He's on the cross dying for the sins of people. And they're saying, show me one more sign. One more miracle and then I'll believe. There are so many religious con men in this world and they are making merchandise of the souls of many people. People are using religion to further their own cause and many of them do it through signs and wonders. We can't be dazzled by that. We can't be impressed by anyone who claims to be holy and yet pulls away from the Word of God. We need to make sure that we aren't dazzled by everyone who claims to do miracles. We need to be impressed by what God has done. And we need to make sure that that person who names the name of God and carries a Bible in his hand and preaches in the pulpit, that we do what John says. Test the spirits. Make sure. Don't be gullible. And this is really, you know, when we test spirits, it's, it's to know whether they're of God or not. And this command is against gullibility. Actually, the verb, do not believe, is a negative prohibition with a present tense imperative. Okay, what that means is that action which is in progress is commanded to be stopped. <laughs> is that, that makes it pretty easy, right? You're doing it, stop it. And so we go on to verses 2 and 3 of our text, and it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now, and is now already in the world. You see, the simple test, every person who is willing to testify that Jesus Christ is both God and man in the flesh, that they are testifying that he is the full manifestation of God in the flesh. Isaiah 9.6 predicted a child would become, uh, would come who is born God. The word confess is the Greek word homologeo, and it means to speak the same. To say the same thing, to agree, to assent, to say the, the same thing. It, it isn't to give previously unknown information like we would with a crime. You know, oh, I confess that I did it. 
That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about doing the same thing. You notice we have confessions of faith. In Christianity, you always see, you know, the confessions of the faith, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, you know, all these other confessions of faith. What is that, the word confession? It's saying the same thing that God says. We confess that He is God, that Christ came in the flesh. And we need to mark this and mark it well. That false teachers will ultimately deny the deity of Christ. False teachers will ultimately deny the deity of Christ. They'll say flattering things about him. They'll talk nicely about him. They'll compliment him. But they will deny his deity. If they are not for Christ and true doctrine, they are against Christ and therefore anti-Christ. God says that we are sinners. And what do we say back? We are. We are indeed sinners. He says that Jesus is God in the flesh, and we say, indeed, He is God in the flesh. My friends, sometimes it takes a discerning eye and a discerning ear and a discerning spirit to discern the counterfeit from the genuine. It takes spiritual understanding of the Word of God to expose false preachers and false teachers. And we must look at how people handle the concept of the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the glory of God. And by that we can detect false teachers. God's preachers, not preachers in general, never promote themselves. Never. They never exalt themselves. Instead, they exalt God by the reading of Scripture. They never put their name on buildings or on monuments because that's not God's preachers. They're only concerned about the glory of God. They want their names to be forgotten. There was a great preacher, George Whitfield, and this is what, what he wrote, and I quote, Let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. Let my name die everywhere. Let even my friends forget me, if by that means the cause of the blessed Jesus may be promoted. But what is Calvin or what is Luther? Let us look above names and parties. Let Jesus be our all in all, so that He is preached. I care not who is uppermost. I know my place even to be the servant of all. I am content to wait the judgment day for the clearing of my reputation. And after I die, I desire no other words on my epitaph than this. Here lies G.W., What sort of man he was, the great day will discover. End quote. Absolutely amazing. What do we do? 
We always hear about these people saying, Oh, I want to do this. I want to promote my legacy or my mom and dad's legacy or this person's legacy. We see all these people thinking that they are promoting their own legacy. That to rest when you ask them what their great-grandparents' names were. And most people can't tell you. A couple generations, and it's gone anyways. Declare Christ and Christ alone. You know, the devil is subtle. He can trick people into denying some part of Christ's work and make them think that they are defending Christ's glory. As a matter of fact, the Gnostics of the old denied that Christ was made flesh because they thought they were protecting the, the glory of Christ. And so they said that He was not in the flesh. They denied the essential truth. And they said, well, th- but you see, if He was in the flesh, the flesh is, 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 uh, can't hold holiness, and therefore, you know, we're defending His truth by saying that they were wrong. They were wrong. Christ came in the flesh. He came in the flesh, and He is the eternal God. What we are telling people is this. Our true condition is to such an extreme that it could, took God Himself in flesh form to redeem us. Man sin, man must die. Christ is the one who died for the sin of man. And then at the end of verse 3, we see, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. I want to make sure you understand this. Antichrist is not anti-religion. Antichrist is not anti-morality. Antichrist is not anti-good works. He is anti-Christ. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ that he's against. And you have heard that the Antichrist will come. John says he's already in the world. Every spirit that does not confess, every preacher that does not confess that Jesus is both God and man who came in the flesh to redeem sinners is not of God. He is Antichrist. And what I want you to see, and please pay attention to this, is false teachers give voice to demonic teaching. False teachers are a mouthpiece for Satan. And this is not to be poo-pooed. This is not to be underestimated. This is not to be taken lightly. This is the spirit of Antichrist. This is in full opposition to Christ and His kingdom. And so we take these things very seriously. The false teachers in John's day, they had a view that said that Jesus was just a simply simple, ordinary man. We say, if He has come in the flesh, then He must have been somewhere before He came in the flesh, right? He's God! Of course He was somewhere! He's the eternal Son of God! He was not just born and created at that point. It is God who was born. And He had the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
And so what these verses are speaking about is the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, not just man. There are people who, I'll tell you what, I heard some of these these false teachers say, God could have sent any man or any angel to save sinners, but he chose Jesus. That flat out is false. You should run. No matter what the guy says after that, run. Because that is wrong. That is exactly what John is talking about. No ordinary man could have died on the cross for the sins of many. It had to be both God and man. And we are commanded to believe in the true Christ. We are commanded to believe in God come in the flesh. Any other Christ is a false Christ. Any other Christ will lead you right to the pit of hell. These things are profound significance. So, the false teachers in John's day denied the teaching of the Incarnation. True teachers, on the other hand, openly, gladly, continually teach you about Christ, call you to Christ, speak of His glory as an uh, explained aspect of His person and work. You should be asking questions like this. When does the preacher you're listening to tell me about Christ? When does he get around to it? When does he open up Scripture and tell me about Christ and what He did? Instead of telling some funny little story, when does He get to where He tells me about God so I know more about myself instead of saying, here's some behavioral modification. Wouldn't that be great if you did this? You know how I know how to treat my wife is when I know more about God and who He is and see myself in light of that, I know darn well how to treat her. I know that it's not just a matter of behavior modification. And I want to know when these preachers are going to warn the people that sit and listen to them about the dangers of eternal judgment. I want to know when these preachers call people to repentance from sin instead of coming in and being a pew sitter and think that they are going to heaven because they sit in church. I take a couple hours during the week to sit in church. Well, good for you. Good for you. The mark of a ministry has to be more than superficial veneers. The mark of the ministry has to be Christ and Christ alone. And so continuing with verse 4, it says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. People who listen to God's Spirit are God's children. And as God's children, they have confidence. Think about these words that are written. You are of God, little children. And no doubt, little children is a good description of us because it reminds me that I'm not self-sufficient. 
It reminds me that I'm vulnerable. It reminds me that I need help. And that scares me. But it also reminds me that I'm safe in the arms of my Father in heaven who loves me dearly. I am safe because I am from God. I am safe not because of my own righteousness, but His. There are times I fail, and it, it brings me doubt. And I wonder how I could be from God. And sometimes I think I'm such an inconsistent representative of His holiness. But still, because Jesus Christ has brought me into the family through new birth, through adoption, through His sacrifice, I know I'm from God, and I'm out of this world. And then the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my heart reminds me that I am one of God's little children. And therefore, I ought to be able to discern the significance between myself and those who are of the spirit of this world. Our loving Father intends us to see the false teachers and assess them. And notice how different you are from them. Not only are we secure as God's little children, but we can also have assurance that we have overcome. And obviously, the issue here is overcoming. Some kind of contest here is implied. In the world, there's going to be contests between light and dark, truth and error, right and wrong. Though the false teachers are sincere and convincing and religious, we have prevailed and won the contest. And what does that look like? We have not believed their erroneous teaching. We have not thrown ourselves at them with complete trust in them instead of Scripture. We are right now situated in the heavenlies with Jesus for eternity. Our salvation started. It's not to come. It's already started. It's an already but not yet. But you know what? There's a part of the battle that is over. And here it says we, are, we have overcome. The Greek word that John uses is the, the word nikeo. And that's where we get our word Nike from. And it means to conquer, to come off victorious. We continue to go to war against the, the teaching, the false teaching. We wrestle with error and bring every argument into captivity with spiritual weapons and spiritual armor like we see in Ephesians 6. And we should be especially effective as we wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and so often we're not. So, so often, so many people just can recite verses, have no clue what they mean or the context, but they can fire them off. And it's too easy to be sucked into error by doing that. The false teachers, they don't resonate with us because 
of what they're saying. You know who the false teachers resonate with? The world. They resonate with the world. The world loves to hear them. And that takes us to verse 5 of our text. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world. And the world hears them. Folks, if you love the world and the world loves you, watch out. Because there are many false teachers that the world absolutely embraces. We preach the gospel of grace, the message of the of good news, but the world doesn't see it that way. They hate grace. Why? Because grace, to in order to love grace, you have to understand where you are, that you need grace. The world says, I'm a good person. I don't need anyone to help me. I've got it. You say, no, you're a sinner. They go, oh, no, no, no. See, they don't want grace because they don't see their need for it. They hate it. And they don't think they need it because they believe they're right with their Creator. The world listens to them. But we got a message. And when the world doesn't listen to our message, we need to go, okay, it's because they don't like it. If you would just please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 14 through 17. This is one of the most incredible passages in Scripture, and I'll explain it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting with verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God and Christ. Our message doesn't change. We have the same message to everybody, but it means something different to each person. To one, it's the aroma of life. To other, it's the aroma of death. But it's the same message. You see, back in the Roman days, when the Roman army would have victorious battles, they would have a parade for the, the victors. And there would be trumpeteers, and there would be all these women throwing garlands of flowers onto the roadway. And these would be crushed by the, the hooves of the, of the uh, horses. And they would give up this fragrance of flowers. But then there would be these priests who would be swinging their censers full of incense. And this would also produce a smoldering smoke that would fill the air and in the parade route would just be filled with this. And then you would have the generals. 
the the uh, the general would have a uh, a horse, a white horse, just all ornate and, and and all kinds of dressing on it, and then his officers would be right behind him. And then after that, you would have all the soldiers marching. And just all the time, they're squashing down all those garlands of flowers. And, and you'd have that smell of the incense. And all the people that line the streets and all the people in the army would smell that. And they go, smells like victory. But then you had the prisoners who were captured. And they'd be in chains and they would be paraded along as spoils of war. Folks, when they smelt that smell, it was the smell of death. Same smell. Same exact smell was the smell of death. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how dare preachers try to make the gospel the aroma of victory to everyone? It isn't. But to those who would believe, it is the power of God unto salvation. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. If you preach a message that the world loves you are not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is a division between the two groups referenced to. And actually, it's an eternal difference. And the thing, it seems to me, that marks the difference between the two groups is the fact that within those who are of God, lies the ability to hear. It's one thing to listen and not hear, but it's a completely different thing to listen and to hear. Jesus says in John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. What happens when someone hears the voice of Christ? What do his sheep do? They follow. And so we read in verse 6 of our text, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. And he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How people respond to the truth of the Bible is a great test. This truth is either taught or illustrated through the Bible. God has always drawn a line of demarcation by His Word. Remember God's Word to His prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 2.5 when He called them to be the spokesman? And whether they, they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. We, the people of God, need to be concerned to know God. We need to be concerned to know God's Word. We need to be concerned to teach what we know. 
Choosing to hear or refusing to hear the Word of God will determine whether or not a person is prepared for eternity. Remember what Jesus taught at the last part of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7? Why don't we turn there? Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. And here again, it's a matter of those who hear. Starting with verse 24, Matthew 7. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, And the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. In every past generation, and even now, a follower of Christ is tasked with the responsibility to learn how to discern between right and wrong. But I'll tell you what, in our day, a follower of Christ must be able to discern what is almost right and almost wrong. We can be successful in doing that only when we have the Spirit of God and the Word of God. We need to know. We don't need to file into a building every Sunday and think we're okay. We need to know sound doctrine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Establish in us the truth. Expose our minds and our hearts to those who are false so that we might walk in truth and glorify you. We rejoice, Father, that you have saved us from our sin. We rejoice that we can be called your children and that we have come to know and that we have overcome Satan himself because He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Build us up, Lord. Build up those believers who are in this room. Build them up in truth. Protect them. Secure them. Keep them from false teachers so they might know the fullness of joy and assurance of having eternal life, loving Christ and walking by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in our Savior's most precious name, Jesus Christ. Amen.